0: John Classen is a Canadian-born writer and illustrator, now living in California. He has a background in animation, having worked as a concept artist and illustrator on films such as Coraline and Kung Fu Panda 2. His breakthrough picture book, I Want My Hat Back, published in 2011, spent 48 weeks in the New York Times bestseller list. This was followed by two further books following the hat theme, This is Not My Hat and We Found a Hat. John has collaborated on several books with Mac Barnett, including The Shape Trilogy and Sam and Dave Dig a Hole, and he's illustrated books for other writers too. Today, we're talking about his latest picture book, The Rock from the Sky. It's a book in similar vein to The Hat Trilogy being a solo production, and it is an intriguing book, both simple and profound, perhaps more profound, because of its pared-back simplicity. It features three animal characters and their interaction, employing dialogue and sequences of images to carry the story rather than narration. In summary, three friends, a tortoise, a snake, and an armadillo, (laughs) find the perfect spot to hang out. But then a large, mysterious rock appears from space and disrupts the inevitability of their lives. There's also the appearance of a threatening, alien-like creature. I'm looking forward to discovering more in conversation with John and so I welcome John into the reading corner.
1: Thank you very much for having me here.
0: To begin I wanted to say that when I was reading it the rock from the sky reminded me a little bit uh, at the beginning of 2001 and one space odyssey.
1: Oh I like that very much. (laughs)
0: So you've got this large monolithic object appearing from space without any explanation
1: yeah that's actually come up before not not too long ago um the comparison came up because uh the rock falling sort of it doesn't directly correlate that we can see to like the next series of events in the book but it does kind of by its arrival it kind of unlocks some things and Um, it almost acts like a spaceship or something like that that landed uh, on the ground. But um, this 2001 thing, when they were designing that monolith, because the monolith was meant to be some sort of like an alien signal device, right? Mm. And they had all these sort of high concept ideas of like, you know, spaceships and and things that aliens would have designed. And then at the end, they said, we can't know this, we're guessing. So we may as well call it that and make it this symbol of guessing, like a symbol of what we don't know, basically. So I don't think it's even meant to be What you see on the screen there, it's just meant to be a representation of things we don't know, which is a good jumping off point for this book, too. It's so much about what we don't know.
0: Another film that sprung to mind later on, and I hope we will talk a little bit about this alien-like creature. But there I was put in mind a little bit of War of the Worlds.
1: The alien design is certainly, I think, has War of the Worlds in mind, um, but only as... A quick shortcut to whatever he is supposed to be. I think that creature, we don't even say he's an alien or anything. He's just supposed to represent something unknowable that happens. He comes out of imagining the future. He Mm. shows up when the two characters are picturing what's going to be the future. And this thing walks out and they don't know what it is. He had a few criteria that alien and and one of them was that he's for sure not anything we know currently. He has to look immediately sort of threatening, but Mm. curious as well. And then he also has to not have a ton of emotional range because of what has to happen to him later in the book. Yes. <laughs> if he had a lot of emotional range, we began to empathise with him or feel for him. What has to happen couldn't happen.
0: I've kind of launched us straight in uh, by, by talking about these film resonances, but I wondered really how the big idea for the story came to you, whether it was in a flash or over time. Was it triggered by anything specific?
1: It was triggered, actually, it was triggered by a film reference as much as anything else. It was, um, I can't remember when it was, but I got into the habit of listening to uh, some Alfred Hitchcock interviews that he was giving. And one of them, him talking about the difference between suspense and shock, as far as your audience is concerned. And he was talking about, he was giving a hypothetical situation about um, a group of people sitting around in a scene, talking about something very boring, um, baseball or something like that. And then after about five minutes of this, a bomb goes off and blows everybody to smithereens. And he goes, what have you given your audience? You've given them five seconds of shock, but do the same exact scene and tell your audience that there is a bomb under the table or wherever it is. And now the same discussion about baseball becomes very interesting because you are wondering at all points, when are they going to discover the bomb? And what are you doing talking about baseball? Get out of there. And he goes, now your audience is working for you. And it plugged in so much to already what I knew I liked about my own books is that I like pictures that look like people talking about baseball or something very dull. I don't like to draw high action or a high emotion even. I like to instill it somehow or imply it. And, I, and so the rock from the sky is my bomb under the table. And even the idea that their conversation does tie in a little bit with the rock because the conversation is about where to stand for no reason mm-hmm. at all. But the consequences of that standing are, whether or not they're going to get blown up by the figurative bomb. Mm. And so the story opens with the turtle standing in the dangerous spot, which he doesn't know is dangerous, but stating to the audience for no real reason that this is exactly where I want to stand. I don't ever want to move. And so why would he move? And getting him out of there took a while to figure out. Every time I moved him for reasons of his own, I didn't believe it. It seemed cheap or forced. And then a lot later, the idea of him being jealous of something new that happened across the page came up. And then all of a sudden, because he was jealous of another character over there, now there's a relationship, frankly. And it's like, now I think I have three or four more stories after this rock has finally landed and they're out of the way. And so whatever mechanically needed to happen with that turtle getting out of the way sort of spawned the rest of the stories or at least gave me confidence that I could keep writing.
0: Really interesting because the rock is really a brooding menace uh, throughout. It kind of punctuates each of these. You've talked about them as four stories I wondered whether you did think of them as stories or as acts within a story
1: I think that I wanted the book to arc Mm -hmm. you know in a larger way and to feel like something was being built that paid off over the course of them but their premises on their own I didn't think of as relating to one another if that makes any sense Mm. it's like what drives each little story is a new thing for the most part but I think you could probably read most of them independently and and kind of get what was going on. I think that also what I wanted to do was kind of make you feel like you spent some time in this place that the book creates. And I'm very interested in that. and when movies and books are capable of it is this sort of feeling of immersion, like you really did spend some time in a place that they built. and i I'm so impressed with it when it happens, and I don't know how to build it myself. and I don't count on my illustrations doing that. I'm not a very atmospheric illustrator for my own stuff. And so to sort of substitute for that, I think that spending time, a long time, and showing time changing throughout the day is my sort of way in or my hope that you will feel that you've had some time in this place and that you sort of feel at home there.
0: Interesting. Before we leave this idea of suspense and um, the breaking of suspense, that first story your heart really is in your mouth because you don't know. are <laughs> told that one of the places is a bad place and you think, we know the rock's coming, but we don't know which place it's going to land on, really. It could be misdirection.
1: <laughs> right. I, I don't think that I'm on board with misdirection for my own things. I think I appreciate it when it's done well in other things. But mm-hmm. misdirection for me, I feel like for kids especially, there's a real value in telling them the truth. In your information and not be like oh you thought this rock was this big because that's how big we said it was on page four but look we actually it's not that big it's just a little baseball that would feel cheap to me or that would feel like we we broke some sort of contract i think that you want to establish that what they're seeing is true and that's how you build the tension you're talking about too is that you almost want them to know what's coming and to satisfy that either directly or indirectly and you can't do that if you've broken the rules a couple of times. If, if all of a sudden you say all bets are off and this is going to come from any direction, they feel at sea a little bit.
0: I wanted to just talk listeners through as they can't see the book. The mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, first three uh, spreads. So the first of those three spreads in the story proper shows the title page with a delicate pink flower against a vast blue sky. We then turn the page and we see the introduction of what I call a tortoise on the other side <laughs> of the Atlantic, but you're calling a turtle.
1: No, so- the t- turtle The turtle is the wrong word for it here too. It's just that I don't, I, for some reason, I've gotten into the habit of calling him a turtle. <laughs>
0: oh, right, okay. Anyway, he's standing next to the flower and he says, as you've already uh, explained, I like standing in this spot. It's my favourite spot to stand. I don't ever want to stand anywhere else. So life is very uncomplicated for him, but perhaps lacking in adventure. We turn the page and there's a double page spread with a large black egg-shaped rock falling through the blue sky. And we can tell that it's falling because there's a trail of little black stones or chips indicating that um, falling motion. It's a wordless page and there are a few wordless spreads in the book. I can't imagine how words would have added anything to those pages. And that's presumably why you did them without. But I think I've heard you say that you're not entirely satisfied when a page is wordless. So I wondered if you'd changed your mind.
1: I go back and forth. We have two little boys now and we read them books. And I feel put on the spot with a wordless spread. I don't know quite what to do. I have to do something audible in that page and so I hope that they do. I hope that there is some sort of opportunity to say, oh, what's that? Or like make a sound for the rock or something like that, that sort of marks that page. And that you could repeat every time you see the rock, some sort of signal noise or something like that. But I've, I've asked a lot of the reader when I do that. I've asked you to make something up in that spot. But on the other hand, I, I remember best going through picture books by myself. And if that's the case, if that's how they are moving through this book, then I haven't asked them for much more than I've given, right? You're not making sounds out loud or, or trying to entertain someone who would be listening for some new words. I, I, I go back and forth when I have a wordless spread as to whether this is the best form for this story. Often with this book, especially in that first story, especially, especially, mm-hmm. I wondered if this was an idea for a short film rather than a picture book, because it's so motion driven. You could see how that cut would work, cutting to a rock, falling through moving clouds, scrolling behind it, right? Where I've had mm-hmm. to put pebbles up there to show its motion. You wouldn't have to do that in a film. You want your stories to have found their form and you want your ideas to have found the ideal medium. And every now and then, whenever I do a wordless spread, it's like, ah, maybe this was a film idea instead and I should have worked harder at making it into a book idea.
0: Mm. I want to talk about words too. Um, this is one of your solo productions as opposed to books you've collaborated on with Mac Barnett or illustrated for other writers. and your books tend or I think your books are written in dialogue rather than narrative and most of the sentences are syntactically very simple there are a few what we would call coordinating or compound sentences and it gives the text a very distinctive rhythm I don't know whether that's just instinctive or whether there are choices going on uh, in terms of how you write the text
1: There are choices, but it's largely instinctive. It's just um, I think that every now and then you write a line that you know isn't the right one in there. But there's something about the sound of these books that gets me off the hook a little bit and plays to how I like to conceive of the books in a very sort of broad way. And that is the idea that this is largely on a stage with actors who aren't very good, sort of mangling lines that might sound naturalistic if they were better at it they're not saying anything that requires nuance they're delivering information that we need and so it helps me to write that way where it's if it sounds chopped up and unnatural um, that's how I like to write as soon as I begin to write naturalistically or how I might speak or write a letter to somebody I don't know how to shut up I go on and on and on and I, I end up you know with just way too many words and way too much information. But as soon as I'm given this sound as a rule, whatever this defines this sound or this, this the way these books sound, it's a great aid because suddenly I'm brutal in my editing and I really like that.
0: I just think, it, I, I think it's really, I mean, I love the sound and, and the kind of staccato rhythm that you get from it. And it puts me in mind, really, of writers like Pinter or Beckett where there's mm-hmm. so much subtext because you're not saying too much. You know, it's not what is actually said that carries the weight of the story. It's what's not said.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, Beckett was a big deal. I think for this one, I wear it on my sleeve pretty clearly. His distance that apparently he needed from the work, the the mechanisms he put in place before he could write even, doing it in different languages or having these crazy scenarios that weren't realistic at all but felt almost hyper-real and the emotional stuntedness of his characters, that's my experience, too, is that this is the only way I can write anything I like. It's not like a stylistic choice and there's other gears I have or something. Before I put all these pieces in place, I don't even have a story yet. Like These choices give birth to the story, what, what, whatever... It sounds like, I want my hat back as a good example of this because I didn't have a story for that first book and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to write these books. I'd never written one before and I felt terrible about it and I, I was listening to what I was writing and it just didn't sound like me and I didn't understand why it was all going so wrong and I just shelved it. I didn't have a story anyway and so I, I just thought, well, okay, I'll come back later. And then I think I thought of Cormac McCarthy. Cormac McCarthy often writes dialogue without quotation marks and you just meant to know someone's talking the way he writes it. And it's such a beautiful design choice, but it's also, it makes you pay attention. It gives some air to the text that's really hard to define, but it's really great. And I thought we could do that with this. If there's no quotations and there's just, you're just looking to see who's talking and correlating that with the text, that for some reason implied lying to me. We could have a character lying and on the page, the picture, you would see who was lying. And then that gave birth, like those um, choices in how to write the thing Mm -hmm. makes the story happen it's not any way to sort of be productive because it takes forever to <laughs> untangle it.
0: <laughs> language is amazing, isn't it? And, yeah. it? and how it works in our heads—you know, visual language and uh, verbal language. Just before we leave the text completely, there, there's another element to it, which is to do with the design uh, of the text and the layout, and how that, that how that supports the pacing of the story. I wondered if you'd had a role in that or whether that was at the level of art direction, because there are unequal spaces between lines of text, which actually do help you with the way that you pace the reading of it.
1: The spaces between the lines, I I count on art direction to finesse those. The placement of all the text and where it is on the page and and all of that is my job. I, I take it pretty seriously. There is an unevenness. I like when things are a little bit spaced out in a weird way that grabs your attention because it makes the, the reading more deliberate. Um, with this book too, for whatever reason, I've all, I've done all my books with a font called Century School Book, which is an early reader font. It's a very warm and open font and I really like it. But mm-hmm. for this one, it didn't feel like I ought to use it. We used uh, a sans serif. I needed it to, to read like like the back of a cereal box or something. It, I, need, I wanted it to be just without any warmth. These characters have warmth and their relationship has affection. Mm. But what this world has to be capable of, rocks falling from the sky and these brutal aliens coming out and frying things for no reason. When I put the warmer font over top of it, it felt like a sarcastic move.
0: So interesting. You said earlier that you didn't feel that you had the skills in creating the landscape that your characters inhabit. And the settings are very paired back and they're often quite empty, but they do evoke emotion and mood. And in this book, it's, it's about skies and forest. I'd like to know a little bit more about your thinking and your approach to la- the landscapes into which you insert your characters.
1: I think it's very stagey. I don't really believe that there's 10 miles or 100 miles behind the characters when they're on these stories. I think that it's very shallow in my mind. And it's meant to be. Uh, and it helps me because if I do have a, a move I want to pull, like if it's a sunset or if it's a, some sort of atmospheric clue you want to give to how people ought to be feeling in the story, this way it's, it's one or two big moves and then they know. It's just really broad strokes. But it also helps the staginess of it. My very first um, sort of creative job thing that I ever had was an internship at a theatre company in Ontario in Canada and we would paint sets. I was, on, I was in a set painting crew and I can't remember what play it was, but we were painting a sky and it was a massive canvas, like the size of a footprint of a small house, huge. And we would tack it to the floor and then you'd walk over it with brooms, push brooms that had light washes of paint in them. And I didn't really see the concentration or the skill that was going on. And when you're standing on the floor, you don't really see what they're doing. And then after it was finished and dried and everything, we went and tacked it up at the theater and backlit it. And it was this huge, soft, natural sky. And it also adjusted to lighting changes. And so we had this big soft sky that if they lit it one way, it looked like a sunset. And if you lit it the other way, it looked like a bright, sunny day. And it was just really malleable. But it was also really non-committal, And it was meant to sit back. It was meant to take a background to the characters and what, what it was they were doing. It was just meant to help. And it was that all that was so influential because it was this weird line between obviously, you know, that this stage is 20 feet deep and obviously, you know, it's a canvas. But because of the lack of information in it, you were able to dream into it, too. You as an audience member were going to immerse yourself in this play and the information that Sky was giving you as far as time of day or whatever it is you need to know. Um, And just I love that about theater, that you are so aware that you are not in the place that the theater is saying you're in, but then you also completely are.
0: Really interesting. That all makes complete sense to me. When I I look at your books, I can see that technique in there. It just allows other things to come to the foreground and you don't need more than that very often.
1: Yeah, I should say too that, you know, from a selfish point of view, it gets me off the hook as an illustrator a little bit because it's not that hard to draw those things. You're doing more thinking than drawing a lot Mm -hmm. of times. And it's not that this actually took a while. The skies for this one, I had to do a lot of tests for to get the the lack of information I wanted, everything felt too busy and I kept doing these washes and I didn't like them. And so it took ages to get this thing that hopefully looks really subdued and simple and you don't think about it.
0: The washes that you use, are they watercolor or do you use ink watered inks?
1: I think these ones were were a mix of watercolor and maybe maybe some inks, because I like the way that ink ink seems to do its own thing a bit better. Watercolor is is touchy. I do a lot of digital adjustment too afterwards. I need a wash or a, a piece of painting that is amenable to that. Often if you have a painting that has too much going on, if you adjust it digitally, either for contrast or for color or something, it feels over-processed. There's something in it that you break and it feels burnt out. And so it takes a while to find that out because you do all these paintings and you, you think it looks great and then you scan the piece and you're like, oh, that's not going to work at all. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of back and forth, but it's, it's not me getting technically better as much as it is knocking down happy accidents that aren't the happy accidents I wanted
0: (laughs) one of the sequences in your book has characters dreaming together as a way of imagining the future a sort of collective dreaming and there's a little bit of that in we found a hat too Mm -hmm. I'd be interested to hear more about your perspective on the dream elements Um, it seems that they bring about both wonder but also fear
1: yeah, well collective dreaming is, I think is a nice way of putting it and it's a nice way of sort of thinking about storytelling in general, right? I feel like that's sort of what we're doing a lot of the time when we do these books. And I've been shocked and really encouraged by how often it le- it does line up And you go around the world and meet people who picked up on weird nuanced things that you didn't even think you were communicating um with the books and everybody seems to be collectively dreaming picking them up. And it's just this really hopeful thing that it, it really buttresses your faith in the work and that just feels nice um but it can be also yeah it is it, in in this book their their collective dreaming ends up being scary and they they sort of dream up the same nightmarish creature um but it, i think that i approached that collective dream as almost something outside of them and i think even in in the third hat book it happens that way where it's not that they both happen to be dreaming of the same thing there is something objectively outside of them that they're looking at. It stops being about a dream or something that they are controlling. They don't. They never feel in control of that. Um, and I feel like that's sort of how, that's what that book is about too, The Rock from the Sky. It largely is about feeling out of control, but still having to go through your day.
0: <laughs> I do feel that with your stories and um, with this one in particular, that you can enter the story on a level playing field with a child reader and their response is genuinely equally as valid as yours
1: the validity is a big word i think validity has become a bigger word for me especially since having kids and it hasn't changed the ideas necessarily or my approach to making them or anything but the feeling of validity in the time that they are reading them that goes back to like what these books could be for, should be for, or anything, is that like I think there's lots of room for instructive books and books that inform children on tough issues Mm -hmm. or situations that they might not have instruction for. But there's also room, I think, for books that meet them exactly where they are and what they know that day. And I really wanted this book to feel like it worked on completely local rules and felt completely (laughs) non-submersible in itself.
0: That makes complete sense to me, and in such a way that... It's a book I would be eager to uh, get into school and to share with young readers and just to listen to what they have to say about it. I don't know whether you've had that opportunity yet, as it's just published here in the UK next month, but I'm guessing people you know will have already read the book. And I wondered whether any of their responses had held surprise for you.
1: I've had very little experience with people reading the book, but I'm especially curious with this one just because I was nervous about this one. It's a weird one. I don't know what to make of it. I like it, I think, but I don't. I, it's it's. I don't have as many firm points to stand on as far as how it was made. I, I feel like I get really overly talky when I'm talking about it because it's still kind of undefined. And usually with the other hat books, there was plot to discuss <laughs> there was a moral point being made or not made or something like that but for this one it isn't as nailed down as that so I think it's I'm more curious as to how it goes over whether there's room for that and or whether this was a bit of a folly and I got to make it <laughs> by the virtue of my publisher
0: I'd love to know just one thing when, when are you at your most creative are you a lark or are you an elf
1: oh boy I I like the later part of the day my, my sweet spot before we had kids is when it gets dark, is like sort of that 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. dusk stuff. It's really inconvenient to be productive <laughs> for all sorts of reasons. But I miss, I miss that weird... There's a melancholy to that feeling, and I think it was even felt when I was a kid. There's like a weird foreboding to that feeling. I remember really distinctly, we had a house that had sliding glass doors in the back, and it looked at this big open field. And... These sliding glass doors would look out onto the field, and as it got darker, they would begin to reflect the lights in the lamps in the living room. I, I don't know what it was. It terrified me how your eyes would focus on the lamp, but really you were looking at five miles outside of that, but you didn't know what you were looking. It was just, there was something about that. It's one of those crazy kid feelings where it's like you're enjoying it, but you're also scared to death. And I think that kind of stuff spawns creative feelings. You want to work it out. Even if you never solve it, you still go back there.
0: Well, again, in what you've said there, uh, I can see some connection between that and the rock from the sky. That that (laughs) sort of apprehension, that feeling uh, certainly permeates uh, the book. That's a great
1: word, the apprehension in a very general (laughs) way. You don't know what you're apprehensive of, but something's up. Something's up out there.
0: It's been fascinating talking to you. Um, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you so much for your questions and your talk. This was a really great uh, discussion. Thank you.
0: In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.